Humans cannot recognize the greed within. That means you and I don't understand or don't see or are blinded by the greed that resides within us. We don't recognize how we're greedy. We are blinded by the depravity of our heart and our actions. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we're allowed to begin to understand the depths of our depravity, the depths of our sin, and the depths of our greed. The human heart, your heart, my heart, are idol-making machines. The idol that we're most prone to make is ourselves. A God that looks like us and acts like us. Or ourselves as God. Last week we learned that racism is a distortion of the true knowledge of who God is. And the distortion of that image of God in which he's revealing to the world. The image of in his, who he is and his character as well. And racism, by definition, is idolatry. If it's a distortion of who that knowledge of who God is, it is idolatry. It is, racism, therefore, is not Christian because it is not worshiping the one true God. It's worshiping a false idol, an idol of self. Our idolatry of self, putting self first, produces an unquenchable greed for ourselves. Personally, I can't get enough of myself. And in that greed for myself and yourself, that produces in us racism. That's an outcome of idolatry and all other sorts of sins and all other sorts of us versus them mentality. We put up barriers between all people because of our idolatry of self, which leads into greed of self. So pride, right? Pride, this idolatry of self, leads into this greed, this, this unquenchable desire for more and more, which leads into separation or division, which leads into racism for some. We create and we manufacture differences and divisions amongst all sorts of people because they're not in our image. They're not like me. 1 Timothy 6.3. Let's dive into this little bit of, of greed and the product of how it produces racism or how it has as well too. If anyone teaches, in 1 Timothy 6, 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So the gospel of, for Paul is the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, which is what? To reconcile humanity with himself. In fact, to reconcile all of creation with himself. And all of that, that teaching equals, right, teaching that is in accord with godliness, his character. So not just knowledge in the head, not just knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, but godliness, the actions and character of who Jesus is. How he accomplished such a thing. 
How he goes about day in and day out. Who is this character of God that is manifested in Jesus, that is demonstrated to us? Do you see how doctrine right here and godliness, the true knowledge, are combined together? They're never separated. They're never separated. True, sound doctrine, head knowledge, impacts daily living for God. Which is, we've gone through Ecclesiastes, what that would be a definition of, of wisdom, right? Skillfully living for God in the character and in the conduct of godliness. That is accord with the true knowledge of who God is. Ethical implications come from who, knowing who God is. We know Jesus' death and resurrection are important. Now, that's really an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> they're more than just important. They're, they're central, right? We know that it's a, it's a means of, our, of justice in this world, in the universe. And you know it's a means of grace, right? The cross, right? It's a means of grace in our lives. It's a means of new life. Christ resurrects us. But the manner in which Jesus lives his life is just as important as his death. His death would mean nothing and if his manner of life wasn't the way it was. His life of repentance. I know that strikes many people funny that Jesus lived a life of repentance. You actually remember his baptism that when he go into John was a baptism of repentance. Why would Jesus have to repent? He doesn't have to turn. He's always facing the Father. Even the Father are one. Why does he repent? Well, part of why Jesus comes to this earth is he intercedes for us. He takes on us. Right? Takes on our wickedness right at the cross. He takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. Right? That's the imputation. But in his life he comes and he takes on and he models and he lives the life of repentance for us. And he models the life of repentance for us. His life is important. He's interceding on our behalf in every moment of his life. So this is a model of perfection. Living perfectly, skillfully for God. Godliness. He's modeling the character of God every moment. Which allows the cross to be effective. Which allows his death actually to justify us. Which allows him to actually be resurrected because of his perfection. Our actions, our conduct, and our character should reflect our doctrine. Now we know it doesn't always do that because uh, we're broken. But part of what it should do is actual model repentance. Meaning when we're confronted with our brokenness, we're confronted with our sin, we repent. We apologize and we change our ways and repent. Right? Our actions. It's salvation. The, the freedom in which Christ gives us, right, is this justification, this one-time act on the cross. Right? He takes upon the sins of the world. He takes upon our sins. Right? And he pays the penalty for it. He dies for us. But more than that, right, that's to, he gives us his righteousness, makes us right before God. Doesn't change our actions, but he puts upon us his character, and so when the father sees us, he sees the son and sees the, the son's life of obedience and sees the son's godliness. But of course, salvation doesn't just stop there. There is this sanctification. He gives us the Holy Spirit. 
And so he begins to work on when we have this true knowledge of who God is. He begins to work on us painfully slowly, mind you, painfully slowly, begins to change the character in us to be Christ-like, to be God-like. Not in our abilities, but in our character. It changes so slowly, we begin to live that life of repentance. Slowly, we begin to live out the character of God. And so that one day, salvation, we are glorified with Him and in Him and in Christ. All of this is in Christ. That we can stand face to face with God. Being with Him forever. Godliness. First Timothy goes on, right? To understand this godliness, right? Verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Now, self-reflection, does that sound like you at any part of your life? Or maybe now? I don't know. It seems very convicting to me. There's a part of me that creates all these things. And it goes on to say, and constant friction among people dissension, differences, who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Just think about what is being said here by Paul. Distorted knowledge and distorted image of God leads to an arrogance, right? Because you create an idol of yourself. You create a different God. You create a God that is like you and not a God that like himself that reveals himself. Okay, you understand, right, arrogance, this is what he says, you actually understand nothing. You actually understand nothing about who God is, and you understand nothing about his character. You become depraved in the mind. And why is that? Because you're deprived of the truth of who God is. Knowledge and in character and in his actions. Any association with God, Jesus, faith, the church for one who is depraved in the mind is a means for temporal or worldly gain. So I might have faith or I might declare faith or I might be associated with the church. I might be associated with Jesus because of how it actually benefits me. And you think, oh, that's not me. But let me just think how subtle this is in the American church. For the most majority of the American church, we think of going to heaven. That's the goal. That's actually a depraved mind. The goal is to be with Christ. The goal is to be with God. That's heaven. That's heaven on earth and a heaven yet to come. Right, so a, a distorted mind thinks, look, at, I will have faith, right? And we even actually say, do you want to go to heaven? Then believe in Jesus. What a distorted way to actually think about something. This will be a gain for you. Instead of, listen, God wants to know you. Be in relationship with the one true God. That in itself is all the reward we need. Now we know there's more. We know there's an inheritance to come. 
But a self, there's a self-centeredness of our faith, of idolatry of ourself, which leads to greed, an unquenchable want, and never being satisfied. Never being satisfied with our faith, and actually never being satisfied with God, and never being satisfied with ourselves, because we do not have the true knowledge of who God is. Deprived of the truth. In verse 6, there's lots of buts coming here. Pay attention to them. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Having the character of God, being who God tells us to be, created us to be, and being content with that is great gain. But yeah, there's no gain at all. It's nothing. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Sounds like maybe your father turned to you in the back seat. Right? <laughs> you got nothing, and you're taking nothing out. That's it. All of it is a gift. Everything in this world that you have, that is because God has given to you, is a gift. Regardless if you think it's more or less than someone else. It's all a gift. Life itself is a gift. Every breath you take is a gift. Every circumstance you have is a gift that God will use. Because God is present. And God uses all those things. The gift, and we'll go on. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. There's but. But. It says, be content with all this, right? But even if you have food and clothing, you will be content with that as well. It doesn't add anything else. Just food and clothing. But even before that, you should be content. Be content with godliness. The gift of character of God being formed in you is great gain. Being content that God is changing you. God is changing you from the inside out. To be Christ-like. To be in his character. That is the enrichment of the good news. This is not worldly wealth that God provides. Because that all goes away. You didn't bring it in and you can't take it out. God has something that will last forever. Being with God. And I think perhaps... The biggest theme in the New Testament, be united with Christ. Being one with him. As Jesus is one with the Father. Being content that God is sufficient for you. That's godliness. Being content that God is all sufficient. That he's all that you need. That he is enough. And when you are not content, what you're saying to him is that he's not enough. I want more. I dare you to say that to God. God is the provider. And he is the provision. And the only provision we need. Contentment with God. And we can never be content. We will never be content with any of the provisions of the world. Even though they're provisions that God provides, we will never be content with them because it's not in their nature to make us content. It's not in their nature to satisfy us. 
But it is in God's nature to satisfy us. This is the abundant gift that God is. God himself, his character and his intimate relationship that he has with us. Being united with him. And goes into verse 9. But those who desire to be rich. And he's talking about worldly riches. Temporal riches. Fall into a temptation. Into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. That some have wandered away from their faith. And pierced themselves with many pangs. Those that desire to be rich and other things besides God. Other things besides godliness. Fall into the snare and trap of the evil one. He wants to distract you. He wants to take you away from God. And so he's going to show you just like he did to Christ in his temptation. Look at this world. You can have all of it. You can have all of it. Don't you want it? Christ knew it wasn't going to be satisfying. He was already satisfied in of himself. This plunges not only ourselves. When we fall into these temptations for all these worldly riches, instead of receiving them as gifts of God, as resources for God, not only for us, but to bless others, if we use it to enrich ourselves, we fall into this temptation of the evil one that plunges not only ourselves into ruin and destruction, but for those who are, we are willing to trample to get what our heart and desires want. It ruins them too because it's based on pride, self-centeredness, which generates a greed for I want this for me. The love of money, greed, is a root of all kinds of evil. And so it is also a root of racism. It's not the only root of racism, but it is a root of racism. Greed. Our hearts are designed to love and be satisfied with one thing, God. And we get this right in the very early, in the Old Testament, the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4, right? Love God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, with your mind, right? Love God with everything about you, with your whole being. Love God. And the results of that, that love, as we understand in the New Testament, that love, if you love God, that turns into the character of who God is, because God is all love. It means you love all things. You love all people. You love your neighbor. All other loves that don't start with love of God result in sin. Or are actually the result of sin. All our other loves are a result of a depraved mind that don't have the true knowledge of God. That don't have his godliness. That distort it. That make it an image out of us. And that root, right, that root is the sin of it's pride and idolatry. Which we've learned is is the root of all the vices that we have and the root of all the sin that comes in our life. And one of the byproducts, pride is greed, and one of the byproducts of greed is racism. Greed fuels racism. 
It's one of the major catalysts that makes racism thrive. It's like sends oxygen to the fire. It lets it thrive in that environment. Our idolatry of ourselves, putting self first and putting others second, you above, others below, produces an unquenchable greed for self, which produces one of the byproducts is racism, or at least puts differences amongst others. C.S. Lewis says pride, a definition of pride, is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration of self. And that pride leads to greed, this excessive love and need for more of that because it's never satisfying. A, a, a more, more need for money because it never satisfies. A, a need for more possessions because it never satisfies. And a, a need for all that because it benefits self, because it feeds the self. Just to further remind ourselves what greed is, it's like uh, some of this comes from a sermon I gave about a, a year and a half ago, right? Greed corrodes generosity. Greed corrodes a generous heart because it's not godliness. Greed undercuts our trust and our faith in God because it's a byproduct of idolatry, of self. And so what we're trusting in is ourself and our ability to provide for ourselves instead of God. So it undercuts our, trace, our trust and faith in God. Greed grows in an unyielding grip of our possessions or possessions, our uncontrollable desire for the things of the world because they do not satisfy. And ironically, right, greed enslaves us to stuff, enslaves us to this world. Greed is an internal problem. It is a heart issue that doesn't stay inside. Right, if it stayed inside, all it would is be corrupt you. But greed doesn't stay inside. It blossoms into all kinds of other sins and all kinds of other ugliness in the world. And one of those is racism. Greed is a sin against your neighbor. Your need is more important than your neighbor. That's what greed goes into. Or at least... At the very least, it greed blinds you to the need of your neighbor. Because all you're worried about is what you need. Greed is a sin against God because it supplants him as provider and sovereign in your life. Greed evolves into a willingness to use people to serve you or your desires and needs. Greed, it evolves into a commodification of humans. And you're like, well, I, I mean, I don't do that. But I mean, I do it all the time. I am transactional with people all the time. How can you benefit me? What can you do for me? I mean, just going through the grocery store. Just going through anything, right? Just, man, how, how are you supposed to serve me? That is a commodification of another person. Your job is to serve me. Greed creates a cost-benefit of life. People and our needs are worth this much. I'll spend this much time 
forth people. But my needs are more. And there's a cost benefit. I mean, think about, we actually, we live this out all the time in our lives. There's a cost benefit in our world that we've created for our life. We've done it all the times, right? That's why we have an insurance industry that actually calculates what's the cost benefit. Like how many people can die in order for us to do this certain action? What's, what are we willing to live with in this moment? And of course, we've lived this out even more so in this moment of COVID, right? We were thinking like, it was the economy or people's life. And so we make a calculation. I'm not telling you which one is right or which one wrong, but I'm just understanding all of that system that's crazy. You think that's how God says, like, well, this person's life is worth this much, and this person's life is worth that much? You know how much your life is worth for God? He's willing to die for you. That's how much you value the cost of your life. That's not how we view life, though. How much risk am I willing for my life? Come on, occasion. Greed is extraordinarily selfishness. That's what greed is. It is pride. Greed. These desires in us produce for uh, desires to, to acquire and to hoard because none of it can satisfy. So we want more and more to feel like we can provide our own security because there's no need of a God or it is it's all about self. And so this is cycle. And so the greed produces acquiring hoarding, which produces a devaluing of people because people are just a commodity in which to benefit us, which leads to your willingness to abuse people on all sorts of different level. We abuse them, which leads into our ability to murder and sacrifice people on our behalf. You can just think about how last week we actually talked about what Jesus actually equates to murder. Right, when you are angry with them. <laughs> Why are you angry with people? It usually is centered on pride. Not always. I mean, there could be a righteous anger. Probably not most of your anger, though, in life. It's centered on pride. It's centered on devouring people. I mean, just think about, I want to give examples of greed, and, averse, and it leads all the way to the abuse of people, which actually just cycles back into more greed and more need for this, right? You just think of Israelites. The Israelites, as they were in Jerusalem, as God was providing the Babylonian people to capture them, and they surrounded that city, and they just kind of choked them out, basically. Stopped their supply lines, and so they lost their food. And so the people of Jerusalem, the parents of Jerusalem, put a value on their children and said, you know what? Our lives are more important than our children. We're willing to eat them. We're willing to eat them. That's greed. That's idolatry. That is everything gone haywire. But how much is that different than us? I mean, maybe you're not eating kids. But it's the same sin. It's the same depth of depravity. God equates it the same. Greed devalues the dignity and the image of God in other. Or at least says, I don't want to see it. I don't want to recognize it. And says, they're not like me. I'm above. I'm better. 
Greed is and was the fuel for racism in this country. If you want to talk about one vice that fueled racism in this country, it is greed. One of the major catalysts, the oxygen in this country. Racism, now racism, the big continent, racism has existed uh, since sin has come into this world, right? But racism as white and black in this country, on this land, is a social construct to serve and to rationalize the economic goals of a majority-empowered culture. Now, I know that might be a hard concept for people to swallow. It might be a new concept for people to swallow. But I just want you to bear with me. Don't dismiss it out of hand. Racism or race in itself is a social construct. It's not a biblical concept. The Bible doesn't talk about different races. It talks about different ethnic groups, different nations. There's one race. But race is a social construct. White and black is a social construct. And therefore, racism in this country is a social construct. Taneshe quote says this, Race is a child of racism, not the father. Race is the child of racism. So here's what we do, right? Because of greed, because of idolatry, we create greed. And so we create, we have to make separation of, of others. We have to put ourselves above because our idolatry says we are more important. And so what we do is we create differences. We create barriers, a ways to differentiate. Hey, we're better. Racism is what that is. It's creating a system which says I'm better than so-and-so, which creates race. Because we're going to create a category which is called race, black and white. And therefore, we all know then who's better. Me, because I'm in a category of that. Race is a child. Is, is, comes out of the idea of I need to separate. I need to be better. My idolatry. The greed. The need of something else. Created whiteness and created blackness in this country to justify the belittling and using others for the benefit of some. In the grand scheme of history, the concept of white and black, that's only about a 400-year-old category. Those terms are not ancient or old. There's something that's created on this land to separate people, to belittle People to fuel the idolatry of people. People created the categories and systems of white and black to place value, economic or otherwise, based on skin tone. That's all. The transatlantic slave trade and, and slavery that is in our country, in America, created an economic system that enslaved its masters and consumers to itself. Now, this is the work of the evil one, right? Right? Pride and idolatry create something. We have to create something better than our, right, for ourselves, to fuel ourselves. And then we create something. And then in that something itself actually enslaves the masters to it because it's enslaved them to their own greed. Their own idolatry. I want you to understand, right? In, in Europe, they ended slavery before America, but they're just as complicit 
Because what happened? The, what the Industrial Revolution created is created the lack of uh, no longer we need it, cheap or free labor, right? But they were still dependent upon the cotton that was produced in this country. And crass, that in Industrial Revolution in Europe actually created more of a demand of cotton, which that cotton and those plantations were based on the backs of free labor. And so that actually increased slavery, right? England could say, look, at, we're not enslaving people. But they created a system and demand that people in this country were complicit with. And so we're going to keep doing that because there was an increasing demand for it. And the only way to keep up with that demand is not to pay the people, but to enslave more people. You see how this cycle works? And enslaves its own masters. This demand and greed created this demand, this idea, this economic system created the categories of race, white and black, that led to the creation of race science. Well, science, we'll say that's loosely. It's not a science at all. <laughs> but created a, a category of, of a science that justified for people in themselves of why they could do value other humans. Why they could humi humiliate other people. Because they could classify them as less than or different or not humans at all or not in the image of God. And so this actually happens much later. Right? We create a system that begins to enslave us, that begins to snowball. Right? Not to say that, that's not to minimize the personal responsibility. It's not to minimize in itself. But then in it, we have to create a system. This is why we're okay with this. Because we're better. And so you have to convince yourself that others are not human, or they're a different race, or really they're a different species, because you need to sleep better. Because you need to feel better about yourself. Because you need to ease your conscience. Even this, is, uh, this concept of, of social construct of, of race and racism and white and black. So even in this country, the categories of who white is has changed. Has changed. And we begin to expand the definition of who someone is white is whenever that culture or people begins to, they look white and they act white with whatever the definition we create, what white looks like and acts like. They assimilate to the American culture, which is, when we say American culture, we mean white culture. When we say they assimilate to the white American culture, they speak English, they eat American, whatever that is, and they discuss and they discard their previous culture, cultural customs, or they assimilate them and they become basically unknown. So basically, don't be like you used to, right? Be like us. However we decided us was. Here's the good news. Racism and the idea of race is made. It is constructed. It can be unmade. It will be deconstructed. That's the good news, right? If it can be made, it can be unmade. The solution to greed is not generosity. 
I know that may sound weird. But it's not about fixing our outward action. That doesn't fix our greed. We know greed is much rooted much deeper. Although we ought to be generous, right? That's the character of who God is. I mean, this is God is overflowing by his very character and by his very nature. He is generous. But we don't just go out to strive to be generous to fix greed. It doesn't fix greed. The solution to greed is not generosity. The solution to racism is not systemic change. Now just hold on a second. Don't flip out on me yet. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be systemic change. I, that we are all always about people about systemic change. We're always about change. I mean, we all vote, right? And we all vote with political parties or we all vote for a person because we want those people to make a systemic change to something, right? We want change to happen. We want things to go back or we want things to go forward. So, Systemic change needs to happen. There should be systemic change. Racism is by definition systemic. It needs to change. We need to change it. But the solution to racism is not the systemic change. It's the byproduct. Right? So laws and outward behaviors, laws created by our country, laws even created by God, they don't change our heart. They don't change a people. We know that. We're actually enslaved by those things. Solution to greed is the cross. The cross being the cruel outcome of Judas's greed. And the greed of others for power. And the greed of ourselves. The solution to racism, this social construct of sinful people, is also the cross. The act and grace of God. The cross being not just the act of God, what God does, but it's the truth of God's grace of who he is, of how, he, how he lives this out. This is an action of God, the cross. It takes on our sins. He gives us his righteousness. He declares us righteous. He restores us into relationship. But the cross is about dying to something. It's about dying to something and being resurrected. The cross being the model of godliness, the character and way of God. Particularly the model of love, putting others above you. That's what the cross is. It's putting others first instead of putting you first. Racism is the exact opposite of the cross. It put others below you. It puts people on the cross. Or it puts people in a noose or puts people under a knee. The cross does something totally different. This is the godliness. This is the way of the cross. Hear it. Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing out of pride or greed. Do nothing out of selfish ambitions or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The cross is this. Become nothing, for others can become something. 
The way of everything else is be something so you put others to be nothing. That's what racism is. The cross is the exact opposite. Become nothing. Put others above you so they can become something. Jesus lays down his life to heal us of our pride, to heal us of our greed, to heal us of our racism. Racism puts you first. Cross puts others first. Will you follow in the footsteps of his godliness? Will you lay down your life to destroy racism in yourself and in the world? Will you humble yourself to listen and to learn? Will you humble yourself to put everyone before you? The God who acts through the way of the cross changes hearts. Change hearts. Gospel penetrated hearts produce godliness. Godliness in individual changes communities, changes churches, changes cities, changes and saves the world. Godliness is not obedience to the law, but the law written on our hearts. That's systemic in ourselves. God systemically changes who we are, and he begins to systemically change our community in this gospel. Godliness in the body of Christ creates system change in our own hearts, in our church, and in our world. Godliness, the way of the cross, ushers in the kingdom of God in our human-made institutions. This does not mean we are passive about generosity. This does not mean we're passive about systemic change. But we know it is God who works in us and through us and for us. And maybe we should say, for others. Will you enter into the good work of God? Living out godliness. Living out the way of the cross. To end racism. In yourself. And others. To usher in God's way. To usher in God's kingdom. We cannot recognize the greed within, but maybe others can recognize the Christ within us. Let us pray.